0: The two keywords are aggregation and automation.
1: Hello, and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Excited today to have Fernando Angelucci. Fernando, how are you doing today?
0: I'm doing good, Todd. Thanks for having me on.
1: Absolutely. A little bit about Fernando. He is the co-founder and CEO of Self Storage Syndicated Equities, a real estate firm with a portfolio of over $250 million, um built over the last four years. So specialize in self-storage investments, purchase existing cash flowing assets, and do some uh, ground up building as well nationwide. So with that said, and I love talking self-storage because. Um, that's just a cool industry. I think I, 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 one, I kind of almost, I kind of want to get into, I just haven't. But of course, when you jump into a new industry, like a new uh, niche asset class, it's like, uh, we got to know what we're doing before we jump in. So anyways, right, Fernando, why don't you give our listeners a bit more about your background and then we'll dive in.
0: Yeah. Uh, son of immigrants, came to the United States, wanted to do the old school American dream thing, right? Go to school, get good grades, get a job and work there for 40 years, retire with a pension.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, unfortunate for them when I was 16, I read rich dad, poor dad, totally changed my perspective on life and wealth. And then, uh, graduate with an engineering degree only lasted 13 months in the nine to five world. And then immediately start investing in houses and multifamily properties. And then fast forward a couple of years, I was kind of getting fed up with how not only landlord or not only the tenants treated us as landlords, but then how the court systems would treat us as landlords. Um, you know, sometimes going through eight, nine month evictions when I'm doing everything right, uh, just to have the tenant cause, you know, 20,000 plus dollars of damage to my rental. So I said, you know what, this is not for me. Um, never again will invest in an asset where someone lives in my asset. So it got out of habitation-based real estate completely starting in 2016. I sold my last asset in 2018. And then I jumped into storage, Uh, bought my first buy and hold property in August of 2018. And here we are in May of 2023. And we just crossed over uh, 220 million uh, in existing asset transactions. And then we have 140 million under contract uh, to build in the Southeast right now. Well, awesome.
1: So you went from tennis, toilets, trash to uh, just, tra- just the trash part. Uh, <laughs> how is it different? How are the, you know, uh, how are the, I guess I know multifamily, and I think most of my listeners understand multifamily, right? But how is that different then with a tenant that's in your self-storage? You still have tenants, so explain why it's yeah. so much different or so much easier.
0: Yeah. So first of all, we don't have tenants. We have customers. Okay. Uh, nobody okay. lives on our okay. assets. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the, the, the main difference is when you're a landlord, you have to deal with landlord tenant law. Uh, as a self storage owner, I actually deal with lien law or what's called property law. Hmm. So the second somebody places their possessions into one of our units, we get a de facto lien against all of their possessions And the nice thing is that all of the state laws, the compiled state statutes of each of the states we invest in, um, they're written so favorably towards the owner of the asset. Uh, So Hmm. if you don't pay, you have a five-day grace period. If you don't pay by that end of that grace period, we put a second lock on the unit so you can't get into it or what's called an overlock. Uh, And then you have another 45 days to pay plus late fees. And if you don't do that, then we start the auction process. Um, It's unlock. Unfortunately, it's no longer like storage wars. Everything's done online. It's kind of like an eBay process. There's a photo of the unit. People bid on it. Whoever wins the unit, they have to put a one to two hundred dollar deposit down to what's called a cleaning fee. And then they have anywhere between 48 to, you know 48 hours to 72 hours to come get all of the possessions and then leave the unit broom swept. And if they don't do that, I get to keep that fee. And then I have a new tenant move in. So the nice thing is from Beginning to end, you know, conservatively this is sixty days of non-payment, but I get all of that money back from the auction, from the lien fees, the late fees, and then the cleaning fee from the from the buyer. So uh, much less vacancy, and the court system is on our side.
1: So, is it? You said you get your money back. Is that pretty consistent? You actually uh, recover your funds. Do you you make money on it sometimes or is it typically at least recovering?
0: Yeah. So we're not technically allowed to make money. So if we, just like in a foreclosure, if we get over what is owed to us, the remainder has to go to the owner of the unit. If we can't find them or can't contact Mm -hmm. them, then it has to go to a state unclaimed fund. But what we can do is we can jack up all the fees that we charge to make a profit. I'm using that in air quotes. So let's say you owe your, you know, 150 bucks in back due rent. Well, now there's a late fee. There's a lien fee. There's an auction fee, right? There's a notice fee. If I have to give, um, yeah. depending on the state, if I have to give certified mail or how notice has to be done. And so that way we we can basically offset our time for going through this process. So you don't that technically profit, but you yeah, do it's, get it's,
1: it's, but it's, money back. Yeah, you get your money back, you, you're right. I'm sure they wouldn't let you charge whatever you want. You're, that's a right. good way to find a lawsuit. It has to be
0: reasonable, right? It has <laughs> yeah. to be reasonable. Then the thing is, it has to be all spelled out up front on the lease that they sign. Hmm. So you can't deviate from the lease. Interesting.
1: That's something I didn't know. That's something I, you just taught me. That's really interesting and, and and obviously very advantageous to you. You don't have to go through a, a court battle Can could the, could the client, the tenant, could they hold this up in court? Is there a way for an easy way for them to do that?
0: No, if, if we're, if we're complying based on the contract that they signed, there's no way that this can be brought to court. The only time you can, th- this can be brought to court is if say for example, a storage owner does not realize that their client is in the military. You cannot auction off uh military units that are late if they are deployed Mm. um so typically we'll ask on the form are you military if so who is your commanding officer and what is their contact information and that's one way that we can uh, get a hold of them say hey you have you know you have someone under your purview here that hasn't paid can you get a hold of them for us or can you pay whatever we need to do but you cannot auction those off we have never ended up in court um of the 46 facilities that i've done i've never ended up in court for auctioning off someone Uh, and that's because you know we follow all the state rules they're very there's a very small section in each state compiled statutes that shows exactly how storage will operate in that state and then our lease is lines up exactly to what is on the state law statutes and they agree to everything up front so that's one of the things i love is if you've ever rented a storage unit or if any of your listeners have ever rented a storage unit i doubt you've read the four or five page contract you just initialed and then signed at the end but if you read that line by line it explains how everything will occur in any situation of you and you know having an altercation with your with the owner of that storage facility
1: Lesson right there, listeners, read your contracts, both the contracts that you set up and the contracts that you sign, know what you're getting yourself into and and know what you can and can't do. I mean, that's that's really cool that you can do that. That just makes stealth storage a lot more attractive, in my opinion, is that. You know, you're right. I mean, multifamily, and we own a lot of multifamily. And some states, it's fairly easy to get a, uh, the, the resident out. Some states, it's very difficult. And with COVID, uh, that, you know, everything became a lot more difficult. And it still is to this day. And it's right. pretty much countrywide. It's harder today than it's ever been to evict a, a tenant that's not paying rent. And, uh, you know, Here's one a great of the- stat
0: for you. Based on COVID alone, everyone likes to talk about, well, how does storage do in in tough times? I say, well, look, during the pandemic in the first three quarters after the country shut down of the 1,700 CMBS loans that were made to storage investors, only three were more than 30 days delinquent. That's a 0.17% delinquency rate. During that same time, multifamily was defaulting at a rate of 1,800 percent higher, 18 times the default rate of storage on just CMBS loans. That doesn't even take into account, you know, bank loans or HUD or any of that stuff. Hmm. So just to show you, that's one of the reasons I got out of habitation-based real estate was because I started to see this more and more this of this political pressure of the government inserting them into private inserting themselves into private businesses and telling your tenants what they can and can't do. Cause like they told your tenants that they didn't have to pay rent, but they didn't say, Hey Todd, you don't have to pay your mortgage. You don't have to pay your property taxes. You still had to keep paying that. Right. Cause and this, there was a study that showed that most landlords that aren't institutional operators are only three to six months ahead on their mortgage payments versus the rents. So if you, your rent stopped for six months, all of a sudden you're going into default. Wow.
1: That doesn't surprise me though. Um, that, that seems about right for most people, they don't have big reserves. Um, and I don't think, I don't see a scenario where, and, and of course there's always a scenario, but I don't, you know, I understand the governments, I don't agree with it, but I understand the governments want to get their sticky fingers involved in housing, right? Because, People believe that it's a right that everybody deserves a place to live, which sure, everybody does deserve a place to live. But some people say, well, they shouldn't have to pay for it. But a self storage is not a necessity. Everybody doesn't have to have it. Everybody doesn't Excellent. have to, that doesn't make their lives inherently better because that just means they've got more crap, right? <laughs> so, you know, it's hard to argue, I think, as a government. To say, hey, we're going to have to require this and this and this, and you can't do this because it's like, well, wait a second. This is a luxury item. Self-storage is a luxury item. It's self-storage is for people that have money because they have stuff, right? If you don't have money, you don't have stuff. Therefore, you don't need self-storage.
0: Right. Yeah, the optics are, that was another piece of why I switched, right? I never wanted to be that one landlord that all, all of a sudden I end up on, you know, channel seven news because (laughs) poor granny hasn't paid her rent in three years. And I just finally said, Hey, you know what? I can't carry this anymore. You got to get out. Mm. You know, I'm never going to show up on the front page of a a news site because someone didn't pay their storage facility. They had a couple ATVs in it, right? They're not going to say, Oh, oh," you know, poor ATV owner, you know, how, how could the big bad storage owner do this to you? You know, it's never going to happen. What's the future of
1: storage? Where do you see the future of storage? like, what are you guys kind of doing? It's obviously, it's it's changed a lot over the last couple decades. Um, so what do you see as kind of the future and how can you be profitable in a company that continues to be uh, relevant?
0: Yeah. so the, the two keywords are aggregation and automation, okay? So, What we saw happen to the multifamily space 30 years ago, where all this investment dollars come in from these hedge funds, private equity funds, and they started swallowing up large percentages. I think I saw a study that institutional owners of of apartment buildings are something like 92% of all the available stock out there. And 8% are your mom and pop single apartment building owners. Storage is the exact opposite. So the top six publicly traded companies, they own like 18 to 20% of the entire industry, which is roughly 60 to 70,000 facilities in the US. The next 100 largest operators, which I'm a part of, we own an additional, call it 10 to 12%. That means that 70% of the inventory in the United States are owned by mom and pop operators, which means that they own two or fewer self-storage facilities in the nation. So aggregation is something that's happening right now. So I'm part of that feeding chain where I... I will go buy the single mom and pop deals and I'll put them into portfolios of 10 or 20 properties. And then I'll sell them off to a second level aggregator that will buy a couple of these 20 property portfolios and then sell a hundred of them to one of the top publicly traded real estate investment trusts. So that's number one of what's going to happen and what is happening in our industry. The second piece is automation. Storage has historically been known to be a laggard when it comes to... Using technology, and recently, what we started to see is this big push in the storage industry because you have these technology companies that are being funded by private equity firms coming in and trying to infiltrate our industry. So, for example, we now build facilities that once they're leased up, they can be run completely automated, unmanned whatsoever. And then these are not small dinky. I'm I'm talking, you know, hundred thousand net rentable square feet, three stories, you know, hundred fifty thousand gross square foot building. Um, another piece is the tenant side technology. So the tenants now there's these locks, uh, that are automated that you can unlock with your phone. You can lo- unlock your way to get into the facility with your phone. The sensors on the unit will detect motion and heat sensing to make sure that there's nobody living in your self-storage facility when they shouldn't be, or nobody robbing your facility when they shouldn't be in there, etc. So that's another piece of the technology component that's coming in. And then all the service providers are also starting to become very tech forward and starting to be interested in the data that is being spit out by these operators. So you have a company, uh, Storable is a perfect example. They have bought the insurance company that was the largest self-storage insurance company in the nation. Then they bought the largest property management software, two of the largest property management softwares in the in the storage world. They started buying you know, door and building suppliers. So you're seeing this kind of tech forward where they want the data because what they can sell is the data from your facility to other operators or high level, you know, research firms, et cetera. So those are, I think, the two big uh, things that are happening in the industry. It's very interesting. Storage used to be this ugly kind of stepchild looking asset right. class where if you were to rocking in it. Yeah, if you weren't walking in at a fifteen cap, people are like, "What are you doing? That's a terrible yeah. investment." Yeah, and now you just saw Public Storage made an offer to the number one operator in the country. Public Storage made an offer to buy like the number six or seven Life Storage, and they for eleven billion dollars, and they turned them down. And then the number three went to buy them to become the number one, made a twelve point eight seven billion dollar offer that was accepted, which. Turns out to be like a 3.67% cap rate. Oh. Wow. They bought the entire company. That's
1: that's astounding. However, when you really think about it, if you think about the ease of operating self-storage, and if this is an industry that continues to be uh profitable with with um you know risk adjusted re- good risk adjusted returns, I mean if that risk is taken off the table, it's really a a pretty easy investment if you're doing things right and you've got the technology implemented. I can see why a big company like that would be okay with lower cap rates,
0: yeah. And then you also got to realize you know cap rates are just one piece. but right. the real question is what is your cost of capital? So extra space, You know their combined cost of capital is in the two point something range, because they went out to Europe when there was negative interest rates and they raised a bond for like seven eighths of a percent, you know eight point seven five percent, and that was a five hundred million dollar bond, so half a billion dollars, and that's their equity cost, right? And then now they have these they had these crazy lines of credit that were in the two to three percent capital range, so their combined let's say their combined cost of capital is 2.1%. They buy a 3.67% cap rate. They just almost doubled yeah. their money right yeah, there. They're doing just right? fine. Yeah, exactly.
1: How, how does, what does is, what is somebody that, how does somebody get into the game? How does somebody like, what, what, how do you find a great deal? Like, what do you do?
0: Yeah. So usually what I tell people, if you're not educated on the business, first get educated yeah we put out a bunch of free education on all of our social media channels there's a bunch of other guys that put a bunch of free education out there bigger pockets has some awesome resources there's a lot of books that you can buy pretty reasonably priced 15 to 18 bucks that talk about how to do storage and then if you need some more on-hands learning you know there's all these types of courses and seminars that you can also pay for as well then after you've gotten educated. Uh, the biggest thing is just start driving for dollars. You know, the interesting mm. thing about self-storage is because it's such a, in air quotes, new asset class, you know, it really started in the 60s, but really caught steam like in the 80s. A lot of the land is misclassified. So when I buy <laughs> lists of all the storage facilities in the nation, my list comes up with about 37,000 facilities, but we know that there's at least 60 000 to 70,000 out there. So there's so many misclassified facilities mm. that, the big guys aren't catching because we're just not seeing them, or we have no way to get to them. Why,
1: why are they exist. misclassified? Like, what are they classified as?
0: So, in the beginning, self storage usually was placed on farmland, right? Someone had a couple extra acres of of land that wasn't very productive, so they just put up some sheds, and then they started renting it to people in town, right? So that may still be. Classified as farmland in the S, you know SIC codes or the NAICS codes, which is the main two codes that we use or code systems that we use to identify where these facilities are and get a hold of their the owners. So we have found a lot mm-hmm. of um, partnership opportunities with people that are getting started in storage, and they said, "Hey, I was driving to work one day after I heard your podcast. Now I see self-storage facilities all over the place. So I stopped into one location." The owner was sitting behind the desk. asked him if he wanted to sell. He said, "Yeah." And then <laughs> they called Fernando and say, "Fernando, how to do, do this?" And then I'll explain. You know, so finding facilities, these mom pop facilities that are misclassified that are in your hometown is one of the easiest ways to get involved. Now, if you want to go less active and you want to go more passive, then what I would say is start looking for good syndicators and sponsors and invest passively. Into their self storage funds and, and opportunities to learn how the industry works before you go right. in if you want to do it active. So, some people want to go the active route, some people never want to go the active route. It's really personal preference.
1: Yeah, no, good, good point. I mean, there's there's two ways to do it, right? And the active route, you're definitely going to have to put the time in the afternoon. You want to make sure you're educated. And you're probably going to make some mistakes going the passive route if, yeah. as long as you find a good operator. You know, it, it, it's you certainly don't have control, but your returns could be just as good, or maybe even better. A lot of times, right. um, so is I, my question. You're talking about the farmland, and the, so that this thing's zoned agriculture because it was in a farm. Like my question is: Is it profitable? Does it make sense to buy self storage in rural communities? Do you buy anything in rural, more rural communities, or does it have to be yeah. large MSA?
0: One of the largest users of self-storage are in the rural communities. Uh, And you might think that doesn't make sense because they have all this land and et cetera. But you got to realize that all of these rural communities usually have a hub city or the towny folks, right? And they don't have land to store things. Uh, We've made a lot of money on the rural assets, especially in the tertiary you know, secondary and tertiary markets because we're not yeah. competing against the REITs yeah. to buy those. So now all of a sudden, instead of us, you know, scratching to try to get a six cap or a seven cap, we're walking into nine, 10, 11, 12% cap rates because we're the only ones at the negotiating table. These things are super profitable. Um, you know, unlevered your expense ratio, you're at like 32%, you know, wow. 30, 30 to 35% That's of good your margin will go to your to your expenses, right? Um with leverage on, especially these cash flowing deals with leverage, if you're putting say 75% to 70 to 75% down, these things are cash flow positive after 65% occupancy. So it's still a lot of margin after, you know, that debt service is taken care of. And then the nice thing about self storage is that it's technically a business as well so it also qualifies for sba financing small business administration mm. financing which allows you to take these things down with 10 to 15 percent mm. down payment and the sba has uh, depending on if you go with a 7a or a 504 loan you have uh, even discounted um in- blended interest rates that you'd be paying better than market rate Yep. Uh, so a lot of opportunities to get into the game, especially in the smaller, call it less than a million dollar purchase price, secondary tertiary market, you know, 20, 30,000 net rentable square feet. There's a ton of opportunity in that space. Those are the most abundant self-storage facilities out there.
1: And I would think those would probably be the ones that have likely the, the greatest value add as far as automation. A lot, a lot of those, like you said, like the guys in the office, they're working. You don't probably need an office after you automate it,
0: or maybe you need an office, but it's somebody working there here and there. Um, There's multiple ways to to do the value add. You know, the yes. very first thing we, we, we always try to go what's easiest to what's the hardest. It's kind yeah. of the spectrum, right? So the easiest things are the second we get in, we just raise rents to market rate. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that these mom and pop o- operators never do that we do is they don't go out on a quarterly basis to see what their competitors are charging in the market. And they usually will, because they're sitting behind the counter, they become yep. friends with their tenants or their customers. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden what Todd's rate was in 2000 isn't his same rate in 2023. There's been no adjustment for inflation or keeping up with competitors whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. So feel they bad won. to raise the rates. Yeah. I mean, there's they see know, him at the local bar. <laughs> that's right. So, you know, there's some facilities, especially in these more rural towns where we walk in, and day one with our estoppel letters, we send out rent increases all the way up to 70% increase in rent. Hmm. And that's still usually cheaper than the next most yeah. uh, the Where next cheapest go? person in the market. So that there's newfound value right there. Right. Hmm. The other thing is expenses. A lot of these guys, they have, you know, either they pay too many people or too many hours to manage it. There's been, I mean, you should have seen the crazy stuff. Sometimes I'll buy facilities where they have like a five hundred dollar a month cable package for their manager to watch cable TV while he's sitting there doing nothing. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. So then you have the opportunity to drop expenses. We'll contest property taxes because they usually never do that. We'll get new insurance providers. We'll get, I mean, anything we can do. We'll start adding uh, the requirement that renters have to or they have to carry renters insurance. And if they don't show you proof of renters insurance within thirty days, they are automatically enrolled in your renter's insurance where you get to carry anywhere to from 40 to 70% of that premium goes to you on a monthly basis. So there's another additional revenue stream. Uh, Hmm. You can put solar panels on these things. You can put 5g cell phone towers on these for additional income. These are all the easy things. Once you're done with all that, then you can start going into the capex items, which is painting the facility, fencing it, putting an automatic keypad gate and entry system putting automatic keypads on the doors. Um, And then if you have additional room, then you can even expand and you can add additional units. Maybe you have additional land, but you can't put down permanent structures because you have easements or setbacks. Well, then you can actually get modular units that you can literally move around with forklifts and you can put them down and move them whenever you need to. Hmm. So there's a ton of ways to increase value on these mom-pop facilities without having to spend a ton of money.
1: That's great, that's great. I want to shift gears to your mindset of uh, this the shift of becoming an entrepreneur. You came from uh, a, an immigrant family. You said your both your parents, correct? Yeah. So they they come over here. Were were you born here in the U.S.? I was born you, here. You yeah, born mm-hmm. here. Okay. So I I love I had a, a couple of really good friends that very very same thing and uh, just love the the I guess the story behind it. So take me through the mindset kind of shift and were your parents entrepreneurial, kind of that journey. I just want to understand that uh, dynamic there.
0: Yeah. So they they were not. So uh, they're more on the nine to five world. Um, the issue was in Brazil during the late 70s, early 80s, there's a lot of hyperinflation and then also civil and political unrest in Brazil. So mm. Even though they got their degrees and they went out to go work, there just was no opportunity. And if you didn't spend your entire paycheck that day on groceries, the next day that sometimes it would be double the cost, right? Wow. So they wanted to go to land, land opportunity. They finally got in. Um, they actually didn't know each other in Brazil. They met each other in church <laughs> here in uh, in Chicago. Um, but their entire mentality has always been, you know, go to school, get good grades. And then you go work for a company and you work for that company for 40 years and you retire with a pension. That has been the, you know, my mom has been with the same company for 30 something years. My dad just retired after working for a few different engineering companies. Um, And, you know, my dad has always been like typical of most immigrants, pushed me towards uh, more, call it hard majors. So you know, STEM type major—science, technology, engineering, math—that yep. type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and I, even though I did graduate with an engineering degree, um, because I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I realized that you know the ones that create wealth are the ones that they make their money work for them, as opposed to exchanging time for dollars. Right. So I'm I'm usually exchanging dollars to get time, as opposed to the other way around. Um, right before we started recording I you know one of our my main pillars if you will the things that I I built this business to do is to serve me especially in the time freedom part of the equation and I just got back from traveling around Brazil for seven months right and you you couldn't do that as someone that worked at a nine to five or most likely could not do that you know
1: yeah that that and that's awesome so You, But you worked for a couple of years, right? You worked for an engineering company. Is that right? I
0: worked for a fortune 49 company uh, for 13 months and then I quit. (laughs)
1: 13 months. So this isn't, when you quit, was it that you already were purchasing and owned real estate or was it you just quit because you're just done and you're going to go do this?
0: Yeah, so I've always, after reading Rich Dad Porter, I look for any ways to get entrepreneurial experience. So when I was 19, freshman at University of Illinois, uh, I ended up starting a painting company where I would take a bus Mm. from central Illinois back to Chicago, knock on doors and give people free estimates to paint their house, book them for the summer, and then hire my friends over the summer to paint the houses for me, right? Um, so that was my first, that was still to this day, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Right. Yeah. Um, just this tiny little painting company versus me running now a multi hundred million dollars self-storage company. Cause I didn't know what entrepreneurship was. I literally was learning trial by fire, basically.
1: But that's how it, that's how it starts, right? You're right. learning, you're seeing what you want to do and don't want to do. You get, you, you you see how difficult that was, but you also got to learn from your mistakes and exactly.
0: Yeah. So I learned a lot of lessons from that entrepreneurial journey. And then, you know, I also got a taste of what it's like to have time freedom. You know, if I'm too tired in the middle of the day, I can go home and I still have people working on my my behalf. Um, So then when I joined this fortune, you know, 50 company uh, as a basically a sales technical sales rep uh, because of my engineering background, I mean, it was brutal. I was working, you know, I'd be out the door at 5 a.m. because I had covered half of Iowa as a territory from I-35 to the Mississippi River. And then I mm-hmm. wouldn't get back until 8, 9 o'clock. And that was every day. And three nights a week, I'd be on the road type thing. Mm-hmm. And like my body was deteriorating. It just wasn't for me. And then at the same time, my take-home was, you know, pennies. I After, you know, 401k match, I wasn't really making much money, even though I had an engineering degree from a top engineering school in the country. Um, And I said, you know what, this is not for me. I tried to be entrepreneurial, I should say, try to be an entrepreneur inside of the business and show how I said, why are we doing it this way? As you know, fresh perspective, fresh eyes. Here's a way that we can save a million dollars in my territory per year. And they just don't want to hear it just because I didn't have the Yep. The, t- the time you? behind me, right? Yeah, who are you? You're yep. new to this company. This is how we've always done it. It's like, I understand it's always how you've done it, but sometimes you need fresh eyes to be able to shake up the system to make profitability and they didn't want to hear it. And I said, you know what? I'm out, I'm done. If you're not going to let me build up this territory the way I want I want to, um, then I'm just not going to participate. So I left and then I started buying houses immediately. I actually started wholesaling houses. So selling the contracts on properties in the beginning because I've always... I've always been a person who's like, how do I test the market without putting too much risk into the game, right? So yeah. I've done those with every asset class I've moved through. I wholesale first because that means that if someone's willing to buy this asset from me at a higher price with more experience than me, that means I'm doing something right on the negotiations and I'm valuing it correctly, right? Then after I have a few of those under my belt, then I actually start buying the asset class myself to flip and then eventually start saving up those, those proceeds from the flip to so then start buying and holding that asset. And I did the same thing with multifamily. I did the same thing with self-storage. It's always the same way.
1: That's a great way to get started in any kind of real estate asset class is to wholesale arbitrage the deal. If you can either find somebody to buy it and partner with you, find somebody to buy it from you, and you can make a profit, now you know, like you said, you you know how to find the property, you know how to negotiate the property, and you know that the numbers you're coming up with probably work because other people that are experienced are purchasing it from you or with you to JV with you. So that's a great way to get started in, in this game. It's, it's so hard to start a lot of times because you're paralyzed. You don't know if you're getting the best deal and you might not have the money a lot of times usually, uh, to get started. So it's, that's definitely a great way to get started. Yeah. Um, all right. we got a couple last questions I want to, uh, wrap up with what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners.
0: Oh man, this is always a tough, I I'm an avid reader. My audible has over 250 books in it. <laughs> so maybe I'll give you a couple categories. So if you want a book on how to build businesses, I would recommend traction by Gina Wickman. Yeah. Do you want a book on tactical empathy or being a better listener, which will help for in everything negotiations, partners, friends, family, life, I would recommend never split the difference by Chris Voss. Yeah. And then if you want a book on, kind of challenging your norms and time freedom, I'd recommend Vagabonding by Rolf Potts, which is the forgotten art of long-term world travel. That's actually what sparked me to go and live in Brazil for seven months uh, over the winter.
1: Hmm. I probably shouldn't read that book because then I'm going to want to go travel for seven months. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my wife and kids might not like that. No, um, bring them with. I'll, I'll, I'll read that in a few years when it's more appropriate.
0: Um, a lot of the examples in that book are from families that, yeah. did this vagabonding journey yeah. with two, three young kids, <laughs> et cetera. So challenge your assumptions. That's the whole point. Yeah, right.
1: Oh, and that's, that's the truth right there is challenge, challenge your mindset always, right. Always be changing and growing and, and, and learning. Um, Fernando, what's, what's a way you like to give back?
0: Yeah, so this is a huge piece of our business. We have four core values in our company. It's FIDO. So it's fun, integrity, drive, and others first, with others first being the most important. The interesting thing about self-storage is that it is a hyper localized business, meaning that 60 to 90% of our tenant base comes from a five to a 15 minute drive away from our facility. Mm-hmm. So we like to give back to our local community. So yes, there are, you know, people in Africa that need our help and Yes, there's people all over the place, but people end up forgetting about our local communities. And in our local communities, there can be people that, you know, they're trying to escape, um, you know, a tough relationship situation, like batter women's shelter type thing. Maybe they have food insecurity. Uh, maybe they don't even have enough money uh, to to really support the education side. So, you know, buying backpacks with school supplies in them at the beginning of the year. We always do this for Usually it's within a five mile radius of our self storage facility. We'll ask our local manager at that site and we'll say, what is a cause that is near and dear to the community that you're in and how can we support? So we've done all types of things. We've donated to all the causes I just listed. We've worked with police departments to do food drives and toy drives. Um, that's one of our, our biggest components. We, we donate 1% of our net profit to these, these charities and these causes each year.
1: That's great. That's great. I love the the local aspect of it too. You know, a lot of us are investing in communities outside of where we live. And it's so easy to give back and to focus on the community you're living in, but also focus on other communities and focus on the communities that you're investing in because frankly, that's where the dollars are coming from, right? So focus right. on p- putting the money back into those uh, communities and and it's gonna quite frankly make you a stronger partner in the community as well. People, yeah. uh, I mean, it's not the the reason you're giving back, but it's a result of you giving back is that the community starts to recognize your name more. They start to appreciate and trust your name more. And when they're choosing where to go for self storage, your name's going to be on the top of their mind. Um, and so, because of your giving, you're ultimately creating a better customer base as well.
0: Yeah, you hit you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, let's be honest, self storage is not sexy. I can't put a jacuzzi into one of my units or have you know sc- flat screen TVs to like entice people like you can with multifamily. It's it's metal and concrete. That's how everything is. It's a metal box with concrete floors. So if I have two identical metal boxes that are at the same price, but you know, one of them, if you go frequent their establishment, it's going to give you that feel good feeling because you know that they donate back to the community. That's a win for everybody. It's a win yeah. for us as the operators. It's a win for the community that is basically, I mean, like you said, our profit is coming from the community. So yeah. why not support our community so that we can grow together a a rising tide raises all ships.
1: Right. Absolutely. Love that. Fernando, uh, last question. What are your three pillars of wealth creation?
0: This is is a good question. So I like to think of wealth as freedom, right? It's not really a dollars and cents thing for me. So I'd say number one is having the ability to have time freedom and freedom to do the things that I want with the people that I want, whenever I want, um, people that I, I love and hold dear, family, friends, et cetera. Um, the second pillar is to be humble and to give back, uh, you know, lead with abundance, lead with contribution, and you never need to ask for anything in your life. If you're always, you know, putting that f- that first contribution or that abundance forward, um, kind of the, the go-giver lifestyle, if you will. Uh, And then I'd say number three is to realize that we have a finite amount of time on this earth and things that we may think are important today may not matter in five years or let alone five months or even five days. And that's why our, our first core value in Fido is fun. You know, if I'm going to be miserable running a business, then why am I running this business? If the people that I'm working with or working for are, are miserable, then what's the point, right? We need to, we need to realize that, you know, every day is a gift and we got to treat it that way.
1: Yeah. The, the, the joy of running your own business. And if you're running your own business and you're like, that's not me, then maybe you should look at a a different business. But the joy of running your it doesn't feel like work. Right. Like you get up every day and it's like, what, what am I going to do? What would I, what would I love to do today? I'd love to go to work. I'd love to create my business. I'd love to continue to grow this thing. Like that, that's the definition of creating a business that's fulfilling, right? That, that really is making a difference and an impact in your life and probably other people's lives as well as when you love what you do and it doesn't feel like work. That's exactly right. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Fernando, uh, really appreciate, appreciate the time. How can our listeners get in touch with you? Learn more about what you got going on, check out your uh, self-storage funds.
0: Yeah. So there's the the kind of more passive approach where you can go to our website, sse.com. Uh, you can follow us on social media, SSSE or self-storage syndicated equities. You can follow me on social media. Um, the storage stud is where you can find me at basically all the social media channels. But I'm somebody that likes to take massive action. and like other people to take massive action. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you my cell phone number. And if ever, anybody wants to reach out right now, pause the podcast as long as you're not driving. Pause the podcast and just shoot me a text if you're interested in learning more. And if you have any questions, this is my real phone number, okay? It's area code 630-408-8090. Now that's only for the the massive action takers out there.
1: Okay. So if you're just going to call him and ask him what his favorite color is, do not call Fernando. But if you're ready to take some action, give him a call. Uh, Fernando, really appreciate it. Appreciate your time. And uh, man, you have a fantastic rest of the day.
0: Thanks for having me, Ted. I appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: Take care.